When we come into an understanding that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins and rose again three days later so that our sins would be forgiven and we would be given eternal life, we become a part of God's family. There's this shift that happens at the resurrection of Jesus where God's people are not defined by an ethnicity or a nation. They're defined by the blood of Jesus. And so just like God chose the Israelites when he made a covenant with them in the Old Testament, God chose his church when he made a new and better covenant with us through Jesus Christ. Here's another way of saying that. God promised that when we believe in Jesus, we become his children. God chose us, not because we were awesome, not because we were great, not even because we were American, because he actually made this promise before we were a country. And that's good for us to remember sometimes. God chose us because he loves us. So why does that matter? Think about how you respond and enter environments where you know you're wanted and chosen, right? I know for me, one of the formational relationships that I had in my life was with my boss when I was a student pastor in Kansas named Brian Trias. Um, I am a Enneagram 8. I have what has been um, called a strong personality. And especially when I was younger, had a few rough edges, right? And so I was not always the easiest person to manage. And because of that, I had this wake behind me where oftentimes that strong personality would cause people to not really wanna deal with me. Um, I would often not feel wanted and it was because of how I entered spaces and responded out of some brokenness. But Brian was different because Brian didn't just put up with me, Brian wanted to have a relationship with me. And so when I would enter those spaces with him, I would enter them feeling safe, feeling seen and feeling like this is someone who wants to hear from me. And it was transformational. That is a small reflection of the way that God has accepted us. And this is so key because we are so quick to forget this. And unfortunately, a lot of us in this room have experienced feeling not wanted or not chosen specifically in the church. We've been in religious environments, whether it's a church or a Christian school or just around church people, where they made us feel like we're not wanted and we're not chosen because we weren't good enough or we weren't cool enough or we didn't have the right kind of sin. Because we're all broken, but there's some sin that makes you, it's okay, and then there's other sin like, no, no, no. And we've experienced that. And that feeling of rejection that we've gotten from the church, we've then applied to God and said, well, God must feel that way about me. And we forget that that's not true that God has chosen us. Regardless of the rejection that we felt from the world, God has chosen us because of who Jesus is and how we've been transformed by him. In our imperfections, in our failures, in our sin, in our addiction, in the places where we constantly screw up, God says, you're still mine and I still love you. How can we not pray to a God that's chosen us? How can we not want to spend time with the creator of the universe who has looked at us and said, you are my beloved masterpiece whom Jesus died on the cross so that you could have life? How can we not be dependent on a God that loves us that much? The only logical response to a God that has chosen us and pursued us is to engage him in relationship. And so we pray because we've been chosen by God. We go to him and we ask him to bless us. We listen to him. We trust him because he has chosen us. 
God doesn't look at you and say, well, I kind of signed that whole contract through Jesus, so I guess, you know, I guess you're in. That's not his attitude towards us. He's chosen us. Just like he's telling the Israelites, hey, I chose you. In the midst of the place where you are right now, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your exile, in the midst of the consequences of all of the sin that has happened over the last 200 years, I still chose you. At your worst and lowest and most confused, you're no less chosen than you were before. And that's just a reflection of who we are in Jesus. At our worst, God still chose us and loves us. And so we pray. We seek him out. We want to hear from him. We want to align our hearts with how he has called us to live because he has called us his children. God's presence is a place that we can safely come alive because he wants us. He desires us to know him and to hear from him. He's chosen us. He goes on and talks a little more about who he is. He says, behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. This would be really hard to believe as they're reading this because all of the people that they are contending with have basically enslaved them in a foreign country and knocked down their capital. So this doesn't probably feel like a reality that's gonna come true anytime soon to these people, right? But it does. And what does he say here at the end? He says, I am the one who helps you. That promise doesn't go away with the old covenant that he made with the Israelites. It actually expands and is better in the new covenant that he's made with us through Jesus Christ. Jesus repeatedly says that the Father will give you what you need. Repeatedly promises that God is our helper who provides for us. That's the second reason we pray. God provides for us. God gives us good gifts. God gives us blessings. He gives us provision. He is the one who helps. And we're gonna talk more about this when we dig into the Lord's Prayer here um, after the series is over. But one of the hallmarks of God's provision in Scripture that we get twisted up sometimes is that the provision that God gives in Scripture is always connected to life. It's always connected to life. God is constantly building commands and structures and provision around exactly what people need to live, right? Around food, around shelter, and around protection. God always gives us what we need. Sometimes we get confused and we think God's gonna provide for us what makes us comfortable. That's not actually in the Bible. Uh, but what is promised in the Bible is that God gives us what we need. So why do we pray? Because God wants us to ask him for what we need. And, and sometimes there's been this counter response to what's called prosperity theology, which just really quick, prosperity theology is this guy that, this, this idea that God wants you to be rich. If, if you really follow God well enough, then he's gonna give you money in a new car. If you pray the right way, or hey, if you invest $1,000, God's gonna give you back 10X because you know he, he's better than crypto. That's not actually true. Like, that's a lie. That's not how God works. Everyone who served and followed Jesus in the New Testament, they died bad with no money. I think he still probably loved them and they, they did it right, okay? So sometimes 
as an overreaction against prosperity theology, we think God doesn't want to ask, he doesn't want us to ask him for things. We think that he doesn't want to give us what we need. That's not actually true. That's just as sinful because you're making God somebody he's not. God does provide for his people. God does want us to ask for things. That's not a guarantee that he always gives us what we want when we want in the way that we think he should though. It doesn't mean we shouldn't ask him. Jesus says, constantly come and knock and the father will answer. He says, God gives good gifts. He says, if earthly fathers can good give, give good gifts, how much better is God gonna be at giving good gifts? We pray because God wants to provide for us. Think about all the ways that God's provided for you. When you examine your life, when you examine those spaces where you have been in need, think about the ways that God has shown up that have been unexpected. Think about the ways that God has shown up that have provided exactly what you needed when you didn't think it was possible for that to happen. God loves his people. God wants us to ask him for what we need because he delights in giving them things. Again, think about as an earthly parent, if you have kids, um, I'm the worst about keeping secrets with gifts because I just want to give them to people, right? And so if I'm out and see something like, oh, my kids would like that, like I instantly want to buy it, just give it to them right then and there, okay? It's partially because I want to buy their love, but you know, it's for sale and I want it. And so um, it's also because I like it when they're excited. I like seeing them light up, whether it's a soccer ball or a jersey or a Nerf gun or um, a stuffed animal or just like whatever it is, I want to see them delight in good things. And I'm not a perfect dad. I know that's shocking to some of you. Like you're like, oh man, I just really bust my, but, but I'm not. And I want good things for my kids. You're not a perfect parent if you have kids. You want good things for your kids. That's a reflection of how the Father feels about us. So it only makes sense that we go to God and ask for what we need because he wants to give us good things. Don't hold him accountable for promises he never made, but he's promised that he's going to provide for us. He's promised that he would provide for us. So we pray and ask him because he wants to provide for us. Let's look at this last aspect of who he is. He says, fear not, in verse 14, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and the fountains in the midst of valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water, and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, and the plain and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. 
Here's what he's telling them. I'm the only one that can save you. There is no savior outside of the Lord. And if we had time, we'd go through the next eight verses, which is just a takedown of all of the worthless idols that people are tempted to worship. He says, listen, I'm the only one that can save you. And it's a little bit offensive when he calls him a worm there in 14. It's like, wait a second, what's that about? So God is not telling them that they are a worm. That's a reflection of how they felt about themselves. And when you think about a worm, that, that's, that's about as low and powerless as you can be. And God's saying, this is how you feel right now. You, you feel like you can do nothing. You feel oppressed. You feel hopeless. I will turn you into something that can accomplish great things. He says, I'll turn you into a new, effective, threshing sledge that will take everything out around you. So the imagery isn't trying to communicate that God's going to turn them into an army. The imagery is that God is going to turn them into a force that can overcome the things that oppose them. You understand the difference there? So God's saying, I'm going to transform you into something that is hopeless, into something that has confidence. I'm, I'm going to transform you out of being a people who are oppressed and, and put down and scared into a people that can move into a people that have a purpose and into a people that have a success. God says, I am the only one who can save you and I'm gonna make you new. And so the commentary that I read put this so well, um, it was Mark Dever. He said that we find hope in God when we realize that God is our only hope. So we pray because God's our only hope. We pray because after we've exhausted ourselves trying to fix everything out of our own power, we're brought to the reality where we're reminded that God is the only one who can truly offer us salvation and provide what we need because our money can go away. Our jobs can disappear. Our earthly comforts are pretty temporary and, and really operate on whims of people that we'll never meet, but the salvation of the Lord can never be taken from us. The eternal life that we have in Jesus can never be stripped away or lost. God's the only one who can save us. In the midst of our need and our suffering and our confusion, our only hope is God saving us through his son, Jesus Christ. So because God is our only hope, we go to him and we have faith and trust where we pray in a way where we say, God, you are the only one that can do this. This is beyond me. And the truth is that we like to think that we have a little bit more ability to save ourselves than we actually do in ways that we've gotten so used to that we, we do it subconsciously now. And this is a reminder to a people who at the time understood that God was their only hope because they literally had nothing else. They'd lost their homes, they'd lost their family, they'd lost their identity, they'd lost their money, they literally had nothing. And God's saying, I will raise you up as a people. And in that moment, that was all they had. And I think sometimes we are actually done a disservice by the comfort that we live in because we fool ourselves into thinking we have hopes outside of the Lord. We have security, we have safety, we have luxury, right? We have excess in ways that no one else in the history of the world could even begin to understand. And we forget that God's our only hope. And so sometimes we have to work harder to remind ourselves that a lot of what we put our trust in is, is actually just a mirage. This is a reminder that we pray, not because God's a cute accessory or we need to check a box to make sure that, you know, he still likes us, but we pray because it's all we got. It's all we got. 
At the end of the day, God's love and sovereignty and grace is all we have. But the good news is that's all we need. That's all we need. And so this year, we want to be a people that lean into this reality. We want to live into who God is. We want to follow the example that Jesus set for us of being a people who pray. And so some of the ways we're going to do that is we're, we're actually going to pray. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to take some time where we focus in during our worship services, and we're actually just going to have some times of corporate prayer together. And we already do this, right? Like we have the collect. We have opportunities kind of woven into our worship service where we as a people stop and pray. And we're going to do that in some different ways. And so it's okay if you've never done this before. It's even okay if this is different than things you've done in the past. It's fine. It's just an opportunity for us for a few weeks to say, hey, we want to focus our minds and our hearts on who God is in a way that's going to help us truly live into this dependence on him. So today we're going to try something new. Okay, we're going to pray together. And one of the ways we want to invite you to pray is by actually kneeling down where you are. We've tried to make enough space in, in the thing. And if you can't do that, that's fine. Like there's something like medically I can't, that's fine. Some of you are like, that makes me uncomfortable. Then don't do it. Okay, it's not, it's not a legalistic, you have to do this thing. This is just an opportunity for us together to spend some focused time in worship on our knees as a physical sign, as a physical sign of the dependence that we have on God. So the worship team is gonna come and lead us um, in this time where we're just gonna have some silence and an opportunity to kneel down and physically show God that we're dependent on him. This isn't something that we think about a lot, about our physical posture in prayer, but it's just this really simple, easy way of reminding ourselves in a corporate gathering that we truly are dependent on God, that we serve him, he does not serve us, but in his kindness, he remembers what we need, he remembers who we are, and that he cannot wait to have a time of relational communion with us. And so if you would, as the team comes and leads us, we're gonna kneel down and pray together, and then we will celebrate communion.